Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 13 through 25. 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 25. Let's go ahead and <clears throat> begin uh, this morning in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your continued faithfulness to us, and I acknowledge at the get-go here uh, my own weakness and inability to do what you have called me to do in my strength, and therefore I recognize that I need your grace here. I pray that you might guide and direct uh, my words and thoughts. I pray likewise that you would direct our thoughts uh, as a church, that we'd meditate in this particular passage of text today, this scripture passage that you have inspired for us, that you might teach us through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I came across an article this week uh, entitled Empty Mind Meditation Technique. I'm not advocating this, but I'm going to read it to you. It says this, the empty mind technique assists us in tuning into universal energy. Experience is analogous to opening one's eyes to perceive spiritual things. Buddha strove to achieve enlightenment, yet his effort was counterproductive because he exploited himself to free himself. But culture came quickly to him when he remained quiet under the banyan tree and let the universal spirit swallow him. The empty mind meditation technique tremendously assists us in comprehending the significance of emptying ourselves of thoughts that distract us from allowing the universal life energy to overwhelm us. I don't know what the universal life energy is or how it overwhelms us, but if you empty your mind, supposedly, you can not have that thing happen to you. This is what the world would tell us meditation ought to be. Eastern meditation involves an emptying of the mind, whereas biblical meditation involves a filling of the mind. This is the opposite uh, from one another. I want to read to you a quotation from Dave Saxton in his book that we went through uh, a little while ago on meditation. It's called God's Battle Plan for the Mind. If you were not with us as a church when we went through this book, I highly recommend it. It's a short read, um, and it's very, uh, very good. He says this, in contrast to uh, Eastern meditation, biblical meditation does not seek to empty one's thoughts. Rather, it seeks to fill one's thoughts with scripture, fastening them to objective truths of God's word. Rather than seeking to arrive at a plane of self-actualization, biblical meditation seeks, and here's the crucial statement here, biblical meditation seeks to think God's thoughts after him. And of course, the difference should be very clear. Eastern meditation, or perhaps even, and by the way, this has crept into, um, I think, the uh, professional uh, field, I think uh, a lot of white-collar uh, folks see this kind of thing. Oh, these are good meditation techniques at work that you can implement and empty the mind and so on and so forth. Biblical meditation is the opposite of that. We have a tendency today to place less value on knowledge or filling up our minds and more value on experience. For example, many husbands and wives today believe 
that the most romantic experiences are the least thought out experiences. Spontaneity is the most authentic expression of love, or at least that's what we have a tendency to think. Or consider another example, the practice of doom scrolling. You all know what doom scrolling is. Doom scrolling is the practice where you mindlessly and endlessly scroll through your social media feeds on your phone. Doom scrolling, you just again and over and over, so on and so forth, continue and continue and continue. This is something that barely engages the mind. We're looking for a quick fix, a quick pick-me-up, or the dopamine rush when that little bell turns red. Yes. It is for this reason that we find ourselves suspiciously in the same situation as Israel when the prophet Hosea tells us this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. And let me just say here at the start, if you are an individual who has had a casual kind of indifference to the study of scripture or someone who has made disparaging remarks about theology, or if you have found yourself rebuking someone else for their love of doctrine, why don't we let the prophet Hosea put us in our place? God's judgment came specifically because Israel did not know the word. And of course, this should frighten us and wake us up. After all, the gospel message, the core message of Christianity, of God redeeming lost sinners, comes through a knowledge of the truth. And this is, of course, what we see in a passage that some of us may even have memorized in Romans 10, 13 through 17. We read this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's simple enough. Well, what does that require for someone to call on the name of the Lord? Well, he tells us, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And we'll trace this a little bit farther. How are they going to believe in him whom they never heard? And let's trace this back a little bit farther. And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And let's trace this back a little bit farther. And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed us, uh, who believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You have to know the word of Christ in order to be able to believe the word of Christ. And that really is what today's passage is about in 1 Corinthians 14. We have seen, and hopefully you're not getting tired of this yet, but we have seen the same theme again and again and again throughout chapter 14. Uh, it is a rather lengthy portion of text, 1 Corinthians 14, and we've kind of been dealing with it in piece, uh, piecemeal small chunks here. But I want to make one more observation before we look at the text today. And that is something to be aware of uh, in our present text and in chapter 14 as a whole. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I would actually suggest uh, one thing you could do with this is highlight this or underline this. But in 1 Corinthians 14, the words build up or the word up building, and it's the same Greek word in every case, 
uh, some are the noun, some are the verb forms. It's the cognate. Uh, so, uh, um, upbuilding or build up. This word shows up in 1 Corinthians 14 a total of seven times. Uh, clearly, this is a big theme in the chapter. And one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul has had to write so many times, build up the church, build up one another, do this for upbuilding of others, to, to encourage and, and all these kinds of things. One of the reasons for that, and one of the reasons this emphasis is needed, is because of our human tendency to be self-focused rather than others-focused. Anyone ever feel that tendency before? The, the, the pull to focusing on self. Being others-focused does not come naturally, but we are called, as we have been seen week after week, to use our spiritual gifts to be a blessing to others in the context of the local church. And so let's go ahead and read this passage uh, in front of us. We're going to begin in 13 and go through 25. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being, here's the word, built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will, will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We're going to be looking at this in two sections today. Verses 13 through 19 is uh, a fruitful mind builds up. And then in verses 20 through 25, a fruitful mind produces worship. And really, this building up and this worship are the two things that this text is driving at. A fruitful mind is going to produce, cause, do these two particular things. Let's begin here in our first section, 13 through 19. The word therefore is uh, the first word here, and it brings to mind the previous argument. If you remember what Paul was saying, he was saying that tongues ought not obscure the meaning of truth, but they are supposed to enhance it. And of course, we went through this several times, and that is to say that when the gift of tongues was something that God did give to the church, that gift of tongues was specifically designed by God to enhance meaning. And so if someone were to come and they had did not speak your language, and they had no gospel witness in their language, and they had no Bible and no scripture, God used this gift of tongues so that they could speak that language and 
increase understanding. But then you take this same person who has the gift of tongues and they come into the church where everybody speaks the same language and the gift of tongues is not needed. And now they continue to use that gift of tongues. And I can speak eloquently in this and you can, and, and comparing and contrasting. And all of a sudden you have the gift of tongues doing the very thing that God intended to, to avoid. And that is you are obscuring truth instead of enhancing it or, or explaining it clearly. We might say it simply this way. Speech must be understandable. That's pretty simple. And as we said last week, it's almost embarrassing that Paul even has to write this to the church at Corinth, that he would have to say something so elementary, so basic, so simple as, maybe you guys should just speak in a language that you all understand. And yet he had to do that. In Paul's day, the gift of tongues, when it was still active, uh, the, 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 the problem was that they were using this gift when it wasn't needed, and the solution is this, according to verse 13, interpret the tongues or just stay quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Don't say things that are going to obscure the meaning of truth. Why is that the case? And that is the case because of the necessity and the importance of a fruitful mind. He says in, in verse 14, if I pray with my tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You see what he's getting at here? He's saying, when you pray, when you worship, one of the things, one of the hallmarks of Christianity is that you have a fruitful mind. You can't bypass the mind. You can't skip the mind. You can't go straight for the emotional or the feelings-based thing. You have to go through the mind. Any emotions that do come, and we've emphasized over and over and again that emotions are good, any emotions that do come must be a response to truth, not a response to the fog machine, but to the truth of Scripture. You may recall that we said last week that God has ordained that he gets to the heart through the mind. This is a crucial, crucial point that we have been emphasizing over and over and over again. The point of theology and sound doctrine is not to skip the heart. It is to get to the heart, but it arrives through the mind. We do not want a detached mind, a passive mind, an indifferent mind, or, as we saw in our opening illustration, an empty mind. We want what this text says, a fruitful mind. Some people imagine that the most authentic religious experience you could have is the most spontaneous religious experience. I picture, of course, as an example of this, and admittedly this is uh, the most extreme form of this, is uh, the many, many churches that kind of have religious experiences, quote-unquote, where they are running up and down the church aisles, they are jumping over chairs, jumping up on the pulpit, they are having fits of laughter, quote-unquote, or fits of crying, quote-unquote, and all of these kinds of things. Those things do exist, by the way, and you can watch lots of videos on people doing that kind of worship thing out there. I'm not saying you ought to go do that, but it's there. This kind of Worship, quote-unquote, is something that bypasses the mind entirely. Can I have an experience? Can I have something that makes me feel good? And yet you walk away with no increased knowledge, and therefore, I would suggest no increased love for God. We ought to have a fruitful mind. 
These examples, of course, of these fanciful things are just gimmicks. They are not what real worship looks like because real worship involves a fruitful mind. Or, as Jesus says in John chapter 4, we must worship in what? In truth. The solution then to this chaos is given to us in verse 15. Paul writes this and says, what am I to do? Okay, if that's true, then what should I do now? He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. What am I to do? I am to pray and sing two applications of this text so far. Pray and sing with what? An engaged mind. Now, this probably hits a little bit closer to home for most of us. I would venture to guess that probably most of us, I hope all of us, see the folly of the running up and down the aisles, the jumping up on top of the pulpit, the running in circles, the fanciful fits of laughter. Probably most of us, hopefully all of us, see the folly in that. And probably most of us are not tempted to do anything like that because that's just really weird. (laughs) We don't want to be. On the other hand, how many of us, as the text says here, sing with a fruitful and engaged mind? How many of us pray with a fruitful and engaged mind? In other words, when we are singing songs here to worship the Lord, how many of you permit your thoughts to drift? That is an application of this text because you are doing the same thing that the, the, the Corinthian Christians were doing. They are disparaging truth in a sense because they're obscuring it. And the same thing is happening when we are allowing our thoughts to wander as we are singing praises to the Lord. What we are doing is we are saying that truth does not matter. That truth is not important. What do we need to worship? An engaged mind. Likewise, we ought not permit our minds to drift during times of prayer. Or, we can add to that, times of reading scripture. Anyone ever done that? I, I will confess. I will confess. I can read scripture. I can read any book. And I could read two, three, four pages, and all of a sudden I wake up and I'm like, what did I just read? I, my, I, the words were doing something. I don't know what. But my mind was somewhere else. This verse gives us, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, actually gives to us uh, a biblical basis for doctrinally rich worship songs. Uh, The songs that we sing here at Crossview, the songs that you sing in your home throughout the week, ought to to have good content in them. And that's what this verse is teaching us. It gives us, (coughs) excuse me, uh, a basis for, (coughs) excuse me, a biblical basis for biblically rich prayers. Praying and singing, according to verse 15, must be done with the mind. Now, if we look at it from this perspective, prayer and singing now becomes a work of meditation. Right? Prayer and singing is an act of contemplation. I am thinking about this particular doctrine, 
that we are singing about at this moment, and I am meditating on that doctrine. That is what is supposed to produce the emotion in us and the, God, how have you been merciful to me, a sinner? It's produced through that. Prayer and singing worship songs is a work of meditation. When you are singing in the worship service, you are meditating on Scripture. You are meditating on a specific component of Christianity, a specific doctrine of Christianity, and you are dwelling on it for a length of time. Not Eastern meditation, by the way, again clarifying the difference, where you empty your mind, but biblical meditation where you fill up the mind. Why is this the case? Because singing in prayer does accomplishes many things. When you sing worship songs, you are meditating. That is the uh, teaching your own heart or soul. That is the balm for your own soul. But do you know that biblical singing is not just that? It has an outward focus, too. When you sing worship songs, you are preaching to the person sitting next to you. In the, you are instructing. What you are saying is, I believe this. You need to believe this, too. And we see that clearly in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, if your mind is not engaged, how can anyone in the position of outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? Nobody is going to know what you're saying, and so no one's going to be able to say amen. If people don't know uh, when, or pe- people cannot know when to say amen if they cannot understand you. I have had the unfortunate experience of living through the awkward experience of having someone say, or of hearing someone in a worship service say amen at the wrong time in the sermon. It's really, really awkward, (laughs) and (laughs) no. If you are obscuring the message because your language is not understandable, then nobody is going to know when to say amen to that. You're just going to be, okay, or worst case scenario, they say amen at the wrong time, (laughs) at an awkward time in the message. As Christians, our mission is, needs to be clear. Our purpose needs to be clear. Our worship needs to be clear. Our directives need to be clear. Our responsibilities need to be clear. Our applications need to be clear. And if it's not clear, then here's quite simply what the text is saying. It cannot build up. He keeps on driving it back to the same point of application. It is for building up. It is for building up. It is for edification. It is for encouragement. It is to be a blessing. And if it's not clear, it cannot accomplish that. And he says this in verse 17. For you may be giving thanks. Maybe you are in that foreign tongue giving thanks. But the other person is not being built up. And so singing has a focus on stirring my own soul but it also has a focus on stirring the souls of those around me. It is instructive. It is didactic, we may say, in that sense. The other person must be built up. And that is the whole point of this whole chapter, is that you cannot build up someone without clarity, without knowledge, and without understanding. For this reason, Paul says, 
I'm thankful that I speak in tongues more than any of you guys. I'm thankful that I do this the most. Why would Paul say this when he seems to be disparaging tongues? Well, he's not disparaging tongues in itself. He's disparaging the misuse of tongues. And so what Paul is saying is, at least at the end of the day, I speak tongues more than anyone, and so this tongue is not being abused by you guys as much as it could be. Imagine if you guys spoke in tongues more. You would be doing more abuse and more damage to this particular gift. But this is actually a bit ironic, and think on this for a moment. This is the only time that I am aware of in the Bible that Paul mentions that he has the gift of tongues. Have you ever considered the fact that Paul does not talk about this particular gift of tongues in his writings? Why is that the case? Well, one of the reasons I think uh, we could speculate that this is the case is because Paul, I would think, knew that this gift of tongues was for a season and was temporary, and there was really no long-term instruction needed to give to the church for generation after generation after generation. I also think another reason is because Paul thought that the value of tongues was not in the gift itself, but in that which it produced. And really, that is in communication to others. Uh, One of the ways that we may apply this today is in the area of modern Bible translations, and we know that there are many people who are translating Bibles in, in languages for people who do not have the Bible in their particular language, and they are brilliant academics, and they are people who know the Hebrew and the Greek and, and the language that they're going to translate the Bible in. But boasting over the gift of tongues would be somewhat analogous today to boasting over your gift of translation. I've translated the Bible in this language. It's not to be boasted in, but rather it is the goal that's important, that the Bible got into that particular language. And that, I think, perhaps is why Paul does not discuss more about his use of the gift of tongues, because he was not as concerned with the gift or with the channel or with the method as much as that which it produces in people. Perhaps Paul thought that the tool was not glorious in itself. And to close out his thought on this paragraph, he says this in verse 19. He says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The seriousness of this principle, what's the principle? Edification requires knowledge or knowledge is required to build up. You have to communicate to somebody in a way they can understand. The seriousness of that principle is stated here in no uncertain terms. It's this ratio of five to 10,000, okay? It would be better for you to speak gospel truth to someone in five words that someone could understand than if you spoke 10,000 words that they couldn't understand. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? At, I mean, 100,000. What is, what is somebody going to do with a million words that they can't understand? There's no being built up. But you can at least do something with five words. You, you could encourage someone who's discouraged in less than five words. God is patient. That's three words. God is good. God is just. God is holy. God 
knows your situation or whatever, or so on and so forth. I mean, you could at least do something with that. If that's all that you had, then with 10,000 words that are obscured. That's the first section, a fruitful mind builds up. That really is kind of an extension of the theme that we have seen over and over again throughout chapter 14. The second section is in verses 20 through 25 where he says a fruitful mind produces worship. And this is really the second reason why a fruitful mind is important. Uh, This section um, is actually kind of hard to understand. Uh, I don't know if you ever read through verses 20 through 25 and thought, what in the world are you saying here? But verse 20 starts off with this, and it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. We might say this in the vernacular this way. Stop acting like a baby. That's what Paul is saying. What he means is that these Corinthian Christians were immature thinkers. When he says that you guys are being children, you're acting like children, he is saying you are being immature. How were they acting like babies? How were they immature? I mean, in what way were these Corinthian Christians being immature or being like babies? Because they seriously thought that you could hold a church worship service in another language that nobody understands, and that would be a good thing. Again... How elementary are we going to go here? And how basic do we have to go here? How simple of a principle does Paul have to communicate to say, this is not a good idea? Do you not understand that you ought to have it in a language that people can understand? Is it a good thing if street signs are in a language you cannot understand? If you don't know what a stop sign means, that's probably not going to be a good thing in most situations. Is it a good thing if your prescription medication instructions are in a language you cannot understand? Take uh, how many pills am I supposed to take? How many times a day? Is it a good thing if your house contract is in a language you cannot understand? Actually, it kind of is a language you can't understand. <laughs> I tried to be signed our house. Um, so that's not a good thing. Um, Neither is it a good thing if your church service is in a language that you cannot understand. Now, you can almost hear what Paul is saying in the second half of this verse. He says, let's read the verse again. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. It's almost as if he's saying, guys, don't be children in your thinking, but, well... Okay, there's one thing you could be immature in. There's one thing that I'll let you be immature in. Be immature in things that are evil. Be be immature in that. Be be children in that. But in your thinking, be mature. you, You drink milk when you first become a Christian. But you ought to graduate to steak at some point. Right? This is... You ought to grow and not be having milk when you're a Christian after 25 years. And so Paul says, eh, okay, you can be immature in one thing. I'll let you be immature in one thing. Be immature in evil. Now, this is a bit of an aside here, um, but it is an important aside 
This verse gives to us a biblical reason to be cautious about what we digest in the surrounding culture. Okay? Uh, I actually referenced this verse several weeks ago. And when I referenced this verse, what I said was this. As Christians, there should be jokes that go over our heads. You know what I mean, right? That as Christians, there ought to be double entendres that are said, and you're saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. If you know every joke and every double entendre, and you know all of that stuff, you are being mature in that which is evil. You, you ought... You ought Someone ought to bring up cultural references that go over our heads. People ought to bring up cultural references from sitcoms that are going on, and we say, I totally missed that one. I have no idea what you're talking about. Because we ought to be infants in that which is evil. We ought to be immature in things that are evil. There ought to be things that we are ignorant of because we're not soaking ourselves in the culture. So the proper order is this. In evil things, be immature. But in your thinking, in your mind, be mature there. He continues and says this. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers." If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he, had convicted, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. Um, when I read passages like this, I find myself very quickly relating to Peter who said, Paul is really hard to understand. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? There's a off-repeated phrase that uh, is appropriate here, and that is that there are portions in the Bible where a child can wade, but there are portions of the Bible where you can drown an elephant. Right? <laughs> there, there are depths to scripture that are very challenging for us to understand. Uh, you can sink an elephant in parts of scripture. In other words, Paul is really hard to understand. <laughs> One commentator says, the connection with the present argument is not obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> Another says, how this relates to Paul's argument in 1422 that tongues is a sign for unbelievers and prophecy, a sign for believers, is unclear. <laughs> Thank you for that help, commentators. Uh, I'm going to give to you, um, there's a number of things that are complicated about this particular passage. One of them is exactly what is Paul trying to communicate by quoting this Old Testament passage, and how is he bringing that to bear on this present text? And then it seems like when he says that uh, prophecy or, or tongues is a sign for unbelievers, it seems like he kind of reverses that in the next verse to say that it's not a sign for unbelievers. And so, ah, what's going on here? I'm going to give you my best shot. 
at this, okay? I am going to preface this by saying there is a lot of disagreement about this, and this is my best shot, okay? Um, Here's what I think Paul is saying. Before I say that, let me say that the context of this Old Testament quotation that Paul gives is that God had already spoken a clear word to Israel about what they ought to do, and Israel ignored that word. And God said, okay, I'm going to deliver this word to you now through Assyria, and you won't understand what they're saying. You didn't listen to me when I spoke clearly to you? I'm going to judge you by speaking unclearly to you. And the confusion of language was itself the judgment. That's the context for this Isaiah quotation. Okay, so what is Paul saying? I think Paul is saying this. You Corinthian Christians are encrypting God's word and making it inaccessible to people. Ironically, God sometimes encrypts his message to people too. But when God encrypts his word, it is only after they have rejected his word to begin with, and then God encrypts his word as a form of judgment on people. When God spoke to people through the Assyrian tongue that they could not understand, it was God judging his people for not listening to his word when it was spoken so clearly and so simply, so straightforward. Why then are you making the assumption that you are God and you can judge these people and that these are unbelievers who will never ever be converted? Why then are you encrypting God's word and judging every single visitor that comes into your church and saying, you cannot understand God's word, you are in a place of judgment by God? That's God's job, not your job. If God wants to judge someone by encrypting his word, that's his business. But you are supposed to make the word of God clear to everyone. In other words, woe to the man who encrypts the word of God. This is not something to mess around with. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that this is something, a pattern that has happened throughout church history again and again and again and again. We talked about the Latin Mass. Of, uh, or, or we talked about uh, High German in the Amish church, or various different people who would take a church service and encrypt the meaning so people cannot understand what's going on. That's actually not something to mess with because that's a form of judgment by God, and you ought not do that. Woe to the man who encrypts the word of God. On the contrary, we are supposed to make the word of God accessible, understandable, to everyone. If this passage here, 20 through 25, 20 through 24, if this is the put off portion, put off encrypting God's word, then the put on portion is make it understandable. That's, by the way, it takes labor to do that. That's why we have Bible studies here at Crossview Church. That's why we preach. That's why we seek to sing songs that are doctrinally rich and understandable. Um, 
And sometimes this takes a very, very, very long time of laboring with people intensely through discipleship again and again and again and again. And sometimes, and there, there are rewarding times. There are seasons and there are times where maybe I have been laboring with someone and all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and it's like, praise the Lord for this particular thing. We are to not encrypt the word, but we are to make it understandable. When we do not encrypt God's word, here is the result. Verse 25, to the unbeliever. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. People don't do this when you speak in tongues. And if they do this when you speak in tongues, it's all fake emotion. Okay, What he's saying is when you deliver the word clearly, articulately, according to what it says, in its context, according to knowledge, this is going to convert people. Why? Because the strength for conversion, the, the strength for sanctification, the power for that is not in you, it is not in me, it is not in the fog machine, it is not in the glitter coming down, it is in the word. That's where it is. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Not my personality, not my tone, uh, not the experience, it is the word. And you will find in various churches what that church believes is the power to convict and the power to change based on how they do their service. Is it the word itself? Are you exposing people to the word of God? In other words, when you trust the word to do the work, when you trust the word to do the heavy lifting and not emotion, God will bring unbelievers to salvation and they will worship him. I want to emphasize the importance of something here as we think of how we ought to apply this text. Next week, we are, Lord willing, um, going to see the conclusion of chapter 14, unless I decide to break it into two more messages. And there's a little bit more talk on tongues, but 25, we've kind of gotten past the bulk of of it. A couple more times it'll be referenced. We've, we're kind of past the bulk of this theme at this point. But I want to notice something that is very clear about this text. And th this passage is like a funnel, and it's been funneling everything down to two things that are crucial. Okay? This has been really boring to talk about tongues. You have said that we ought to preach according to knowledge and uh, edification requires intelligibility a thousand times in the past three weeks, John. And I'm getting very sick of this, okay? Okay, fine. This has been funneling to two things that are crucial to understand in this passage. The first one is in verse 17, and this is that Paul's instruction was for the purpose of building up. We've seen this again and again and again. In verse 17, he says that 
We need to do this so that people will be built up or edified. I want to draw your attention to the second one, which is in verse 25, and that one is worshiping God. Okay? Paul is, Paul is saying that what's more important than anything else is that people will worship God and that people will be built up. And all of this talk about getting to the heart through the mind and edifying through intelligibility and not encrypting the word of God, all of that stuff is like the railroad tracks and it has just been a path to tell us how to get there. I want you to worship God and I want you to build up other people and I want you to preach the gospel in such a way that other people will repent and believe on Christ. And by the way, here's how you get there. Make the message understandable. It's not that complicated. Make it understandable. The reason that a fruitful mind is so important, the reason that we don't bypass the mind is so essential, is not because we love knowledge itself, in itself, for itself, or that we love understanding in itself, for itself. Rather, the reason that this is so essential is because of what it produces, namely, an edified church and more worshipers. Because what is the most important thing? God. God is more important than anything or anybody in all of existence. And worshiping him is the greatest thing that we could ever do. This means something very important, and I hope that you understand this. What did Jesus say the most important command in the whole law was? Love God and love others. Okay, well, you see that right here. A fruitful mind produces more worship for God, which is loving God. You see how we can obey Christ's call to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength through this passage? What else does a fruitful mind do? A fruitful mind produces edification in the church, which is what? The second thing that Jesus said, loving people. Love God, love people. How is that done? Through a fruitful and engaged mind, through doctrine, through truth through the word of God. Jesus told us what we are to do. Paul here is telling us how we are to accomplish it. Not through flashy entertainment, but through serious contemplation and meditation on the word of God. I began today's message with Hosea 6, and we're going to read it again. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. We read this in Romans 10, verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Isaiah 5, 13. Therefore, my people will go into exile for what? Lack of knowledge. We don't love knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Paul made this clear in 1 Corinthians 8. Do you remember this? What did he say? Knowledge puffs up. You remember that? We do not love knowledge for the sake of knowledge, for the sake of being flashy about it, for the sake of being braggadocious about it, or for the sake of thinking I'm self-important because I have all this knowledge. We love, we do love a brand of knowledge that helps us know God more and therefore helps us love God more. That is what we want. Three points of application today. Number one, recognize that true worship involves a fruitful and engaged mind. 
got to recognize this before we can apply it in any way. The second one is this. Pursue the edification of the church through singing, praying, and speaking with doctrinally rich content. Okay? What does that mean? We are to be fruitful, theologically and biblically fruitful, in the worship service. We sing songs that have doctrinally rich content. We want to pray in ways that are biblically faithful to Scripture. And we want to speak or preach or teach or have Bible studies that are not wishy-washy. Well, this passage means to me, but we want to have what does this passage mean in itself and what is God communicating to me through his absolute truth, absolute word of God. That is what we are to do. And what does that produce? Edification. I can't be edified if I don't know who God is. I mean, if God is just whatever I want God to be, then I... But if I know that God is faithful, that knowledge leads me to rejoicing and worshiping God, right? If, if, I, if I'm discouraged or depressed and I know that God is with me, that knowledge leads to hope in God. You see, and we can go so on and so forth. And finally, pursue evangelism and new worshipers, which is what evangelism is, creating new worshipers. Pursue this through the proclamation of true theology or sound doctrine. We can't sugarcoat things. We can't skirt around things. We have to simply give the truth as it is in Scripture. This is what we are called to do. Now, before we close, I want to say one more thing, and that is, at the end of the day, the most important thing is God himself. We're not here to worship you. Uh, We're not here to worship me. Um, We're here to worship God. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly worthy of all our worship. And if we truly love God, then we will love his ways. We will love his prescriptions. We will love his methods. And that is what the passage calls us to do today. Thank you, God, again for today and this time we could be together. We pray for your grace now that you may help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to instruct one another through... um, edification through the truth of your word, that we would love the scripture, that we would love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.